we'll be looking at a strange passage from the, uh, uh, one of the birth narratives from Matthew, Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 16. It's a strange passage for Advent, perhaps. I hope that it will make sense as we go along. It's a passage known as the slaughter of the innocents, and it refers, of course, uh, to um, Herod's uh, reaction to the news that we have been hearing from Isaiah, namely, our God reigns. The variation on that theme that Herod has heard is that our God reigns and he has come. How does Herod respond to that? In chapter 2, we have the well-known past, the uh, beginning in chapter 2, we have the well-known account of the wise men or the magi from the east coming to search for Jesus and to worship him. <coughs> Excuse me. We have the account then of the angel telling Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt. And then we have the account that we're about to read, after which we have the account of Jesus returning from Egypt. So today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Brothers and sisters, I know that this seems to be a strange passage, but nonetheless, it is God's word preserved for us, for our good. It is, in fact, a part of his good news that we may put our hope in him. So let us go and ask that he would grant us ears to hear and eyes to watch and see. Father, we do pray that you would take this strange passage that... Um, it seems so strange to us for an Advent passage. It uh, curdles our skin. It causes us to cringe and to draw back. So, Father, we need to be strengthened by your Spirit. Uh, to listen well, why is it that you, in your goodness and in your love and in your grace toward us, would preserve for us such a passage? We pray that you would do this, not only that we would feed upon this your word, but that in this season we may behold your glory. For we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen. We do live, as the title of that old movie suggests, 
in a mad, 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 mad world. I don't need to convince you of it. You can recite to me the headlines that you have read just in the last 48 hours, perhaps. We live in a world gone horribly, horribly wrong. Some of you feel that in your own soul. Some of you experience that in your own family immediately, day after day after day. Some of you experience it in your extended families in special seasons such as Thanksgiving and Advent. Some of you experience it at school. Some of you experience it at work. We live in a world gone horribly, horribly wrong. Which raises the question, I don't know if you thought this like I thought this. Our oldest was born in December of 2001. We were six months or so pregnant when 9-11 hit. And so you ask the question, what responsible human being would bring another human being into such a world as such a time as this. It's a scary time to bring children into the world. Why would we do such a thing? Why would we celebrate baptism in such a world as this? Why celebrate Advent? It can feel a bit like Whistling Dixie while Atlanta burns. As though we're trying to distract ourselves or even escape from the painful realities of a world gone horribly wrong. Man up. Face reality. In fact, a well-known and greatly loved and respected writer in our circles recently wrote, Warning! Christmas is coming! And in one of his opening paragraphs, he writes this, The Advent season is upon us. It should be a gloriously peaceful time of remembering God's ultimate response to his lost and rebellious image bearers. That response wasn't to condemn, but to give the ultimate gift of grace, the gift of himself in the person of his son. But instead of a peaceful season of worship and celebration, Advent has devolved into a spiritual war with your family at the center. Listen to that last line. He writes, but... Instead of a peaceful season of worship and celebration, Advent has devolved into a spiritual war with your family at the center. Now, I, I love just about everything that this man writes. But with all due respect, and while I appreciate what he is saying, the fact is that Advent has always been a declaration of war. Advent has always been waging war. Sunday worship has 
always been about waging war. A spiritual war. A social war. A cultural war. A political war. A military war. An economic war. It has always been a war. It has always been a war about where our allegiances lie. It has always been a war with very real, very spiritual, very physical casualties. And it has never been a war with our families at the center. It has always been a war about Christ at the center. The critical center, the crucial center, because it has always been a war about who is this King of glory. Who is this King of glory and will you pledge your and your families and your children's allegiance to him? You see, bringing children into the world, baptizing them, gathering together each week for public, visible corporate, corporate worship, celebrating the Lord's table as we will do here in just a moment, celebrating Advent, brothers and sisters, is not about distracting ourselves from the battle that rages. It is not about escaping the battle that rages. It is about entering into the very heart of the battle, the very heat of the battle, the very center of the battle, this is where the battle is won and fought. Won and fought. The celebration of Advent is the celebration of history's most stunning and most mystifying military campaign ever. Ask any military strategist about what they believe is the most effective way to wage war, and I promise you, not one of them is going to say, plant a helpless infant in the midst of the enemy. Not one of them will say, drop a table behind enemy lines and invite your enemies to dinner. Not one of them will say it. And yet, that is the military campaign that we remember that we celebrate, and that we wage even today. Matthew, as he opens up his gospel account of the coming of Jesus Christ, is casting it as a tale of two kings, of two kingdoms at war. And Matthew, especially in chapter 2, puts his storytelling skills on display here. He's allowing, for example, Herod's preferred designation of king to stand for the purposes of framing the story. The beginning of chapter 2. In the beginning of chapter 2, he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, the wise men came and said, Where is he who has been born the king? And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now Matthew understands that Herod is just a client king of Rome. 
He understands that it's a flattering title to give to Herod. But it's the title that Herod preferred. And it's the title by which he was known. And so he lets it stand. Because he's telling a story of two kings. And two kingdoms. that are at war. He goes back and forth. He opens up with his Herod the king receiving this strange and, and alarming question from the wise men. And then he flashes over and he shows the, the holy family, Joseph and Mary, and their newborn baby at the, in the manger. And he says, get out of Dodge. They're coming for you. And then he flashes back to Herod in the passage that we are looking at today. And then he flashes back. And so you can imagine if... Matthew had access to Pixar, how such a movie would unfold. These scenes flashing back between these two kings, one seeking to deceive and manipulate the people and circumstances around him in order to outmaneuver what he perceives as this approaching threat, while the other lies helplessly and vulnerably in a manger as the most helpless of most beings, a human infant. Herod literally embodied four of the major historic centers of power and influence in the region at the time. He was racially an Arab, an Edomite. He was religiously a Jew by conversion. He was culturally a Greek and politically a Roman. That is to say, he and his family had gotten themselves connected with the Roman power structures, to the point even that he received citizenship, citizenship as an honor. He was a schemer and a manipulator. He was childish, he was petulant, he was petty. He sought every opportunity, especially in his later years, and stopped at nothing to gain more power, more wealth, more influence, and to secure it all, to expand his realm. Which, by the way, any king who's worthy of the name can simply, by fiat, say, my kingdom will go to such and such and so and so. But Herod's kingdom, he couldn't bequeath it to anyone without the approval of Caesar. This is the guy who became suspicious of his wife, and so he had her killed, along with their three sons and her mother and other members of her extended family to secure his place, to secure his realm. As Caesar Augustus once quipped, it was better to be a pig in Herod's house than to be his son. Man, it's better to be a pig in the house of a Jew than to be his son? How bad does this have to be? And so when Matthew says in chapter 2, verse 3, Herod the king heard this and he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, it's a master of understatement. When such a man is troubled, 
Who knows what's going to happen? It's not difficult even for us to imagine today how such a man, if he had access to Twitter, might use Twitter to humiliate his enemies. Not hard to imagine, I said. Imagine. Herod, as Matthew is telling this story, functions in Matthew's account as the embodiment of the spirit of our age. He shows his true colors in our passage. In the so-called slaughter of the innocents. You remember the story, the Magi came from the east to honor the newborn king. They asked the current king, which was reasonable for them to do, where the newborn king is, because of course he would know. And so is set in motion the events of our chapter, indeed the events that get recorded in the rest of Matthew. And our passage in verse 16 says this, when he saw that he had been tricked, in that language of tricked, is the hint to what's going on in Herod's heart, because the language there is not merely um, schoolboy teasing, schoolboy jesting, ha, tricked ya! But neither is it even merely the political intrigue that we are so accustomed to even in our day. Rather, it carries with it the notion of being purposefully mocked and humiliated, publicly exposed as a fool. As the proud and insecure man that he was, he took the actions of the Magi as an intentional ploy to humiliate him. And so, like a child with access to platform and power, he lashes out in order to show them who's really in charge, who's really the boss. And so, snaps his finger, and he says, all male children two years and under in Bethlehem and the surrounding region are to be executed. There's some debate about whether or not this actually happened because that we, we do not have in existing documents corroborating evidence of the fact. Most archaeologists will agree that, um, statistically speaking, Bethlehem probably about, had about 20 such children, boys two years and younger. That's based on the population and the law of averages, etc., etc. Perhaps more if you count the surrounding region but the question remains, for us, this is, this is a terribly upsetting passage. And for us, the question is, why would something like that not get recorded? I mean, even in our own day, you have to realize that the things that we hear about are only the most egregious. We don't hear about a lot that happens. And the fact is, most people agree that the, that uh, the reign of terror in Herod's latter years was so great that this would just pale in comparison. I was just 20, and there were two years and younger. Not a big deal compared to what else he's done. But in Matthew's telling, this episode represents the fullness of times. 
It represents the sin of the Amalekites, if you will, reaching its absolute fullness. The, the absolute completion and perfection of mankind's rebellion against God's grace and against God's reign. The wickedness of mankind having multiplied to the extreme its fullest expression. In fact, this is what Peter has in view when in his first letter he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Even as egregious as this. You see, in Matthew's telling of the story, Herod is the representative of the kingdom of this world. In fact, he's the hero of the kingdoms of this world. He is the one who perfectly embodies their values and their priorities and their ways. He is the embodiment of the spirit of the age. Herod is every man. Herod is humanity stripped of grace. Herod is humanity in rebellion against the reign of God's glory. This is Matthew's version of Paul's argument in Romans 1, 18 and following. Herod is us. There is none righteous. No, not one. Not one who is righteous. Paul states it. Matthew shows it. Herod is our king who embodies the spirit of our age. Herod shows us the ways of our enemy among us. The frank truth is our enemy does not care which God we worship or which king we serve as long as it's not Jesus. You want to call that king yourself? He's happy for you to serve that king. You want to call that king your family? He's happy for you to serve that king. You want to call that king your hobby? He's happy for you to serve that king. You want to call that king your education, your career? He's happy for you to serve that king. He just does not want you to serve King Jesus. We can think of examples of men in our own time who embody the spirit of our age, childish and petulant and petty and proud and insecure men at all kinds of places and positions. But we can also think of men in Scripture. We can think of King Saul in the Old Testament as one whose initial apparent humility turns out to in fact be evidence of his profound pride and insecurity at play. We can think of Paul's own story. Remember, he was on his way to Damascus in the sincere service of God's glory and of God's righteousness. And he encounters the risen king who says to him, why are you persecuting me? And he discovered in that moment that his zeal for righteousness was in fact a suppression of God's righteousness. Paul, you see, is Herod. The violent suppressors of truth are all of us. It's our natural instinct. It's our natural bent. As Tim Keller writes, most people want Jesus as a consultant, 
But when he refuses that job and insists on being king, we become angry and either turn away or lash out. He writes in another place, the greatest threat to humanity is not out there. Rather, it is in here, in the deep recesses of the soul. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn says, the line between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the line between good and evil runs right through the middle of our soul. As Keller writes elsewhere, if you want Jesus with you, you must give up the right of self-determination. After all, Jesus is king. Jesus cannot just be liked, he said recently. His claims make us either kill him or crown him. And so when Herod gets word that someone has been born who is rumored to be a new king, he realizes that his days as king and his, the days of his kingdom are numbered. And he will stop at nothing to defend it and to secure it. Which is precisely the role that Herod plays for us in Matthew's telling. He has Herod doing for us what we are naturally inclined to do save for the grace of God, and that is to destroy the one who threatens to destroy the kingdom that we have worked so hard to build. It appears to us that the game is over. It's so horrendous that, in fact, there is a loud weeping and wailing that you can hear throughout the surrounding region from the people in Bethlehem. The rebellion against the king results in such weeping and wailing. And against such power, we have a baby. What hope is there in that scenario? It appears that the scene is one of several in which Matthew goes back and forth to question the flight, the slaughter, the return. He he's, has this juxtaposition, this arm wrestling match going on between power and weakness, strength and vulnerability. And the outcome of the emerging conflict is self-evident. Herod has all the resources at his disposal and the newborn baby has none. It does not bode well for the infant. Might as well have a fire-breathing dragon crouching at the door, ready to pounce and devour and destroy. Magi from the east falling down and worshiping the newborn baby while Herod schemes to destroy him is like dancing in the dragon's jaws. It's like being at a football game. The score is 27 to 10. And there's one minute to go. Oh, that's good. Game is over. Let's beat the crowd. What can you do in one minute? Let's go. But if you did that on November 9th in 2017, you would have missed an amazing game. This is how the article starts. Maple Grove High School in Minnesota pulled off one of the most improbable comebacks you'll ever see on Thursday, November 9th. The Crimson, that is 
Maple Grove High School trailed 27 to 10 with 59 seconds to play in the Class 6A state quarterfinals against St. Michael Albertville and won. The comeback started when Curtis Haugen found Joe Raymond for a 30-yard touchdown with 59 seconds left. On the first play after the successful onside kick, it was Haugen to Raymond again, this time for 49 yards. That made it 27-22. Then there was another successful onside kick, another hookup from Haugen to Raymond, that set Maple Grove up at the one Evan Hall waltzed in. And it was a waltz. I watched it on YouTube. He waltzed in for the go-ahead score with just four seconds to play. Can you imagine being there? I don't think the crowd went wild. I think the crowd stood in stunned silence. It appears that one team has so absolutely dominated the game and secured the victory this other team, however, pulls an amazing, entirely unexpected and unbelievable and improbable victory from the death jaws of the dragon himself. This is why Vinoth Ramakandra writes about our hope in his book, Subverting Global Myths. He writes this, the prospect of endless acts of terror creates a sense that the future is closed, inevitable, and hopeless. But Christians abide in a hope that is not based on the conditions of world history. It is rooted, nevertheless, in the conviction that the triune God has not abandoned his world to usurping principalities and powers such as Herod, but has acted decisively in Christ for its healing and recreation. The Christian hope that energizes a passionate and sustained engagement with this world, and shall I say, celebration of Advent. In the face of violence and terror is a hope that looks forward to the coming one whose life began with the slaughter of the innocents, who fled as a refugee with his family to Egypt, who suffered torture and terrorism at the hands of imperial power of his day, died so that both victims and victimizers may find forgiveness and new beginnings, descended into hell to show solidarity with all who have experienced his destructive power, and finally defeated death, fatalism, and terror by his bodily resurrection. To be baptized into that death and resurrection is to both be free from the fear of dying and also fearful of dying in the service of the wrong king. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that is why we are here today? We are here today because our king reigns. We are here today not to escape the dangers of the world, but to engage them to do battle with them. Celebrating Advent in a dark world at war can feel to us to be irrelevant. But as we ourselves move back and forth between effect and cause, watching and interacting with people as people, looking ill at ease, suspecting this and suspecting them, 
watching the fraying rope get closer to breaking, are gathering to remember, to recount, to celebrate, and to participate in the first and continuing advent of Jesus, even while anticipating his second advent, is a witness to the reality just over the horizon, just beyond the range of normal sight. That a glittering joker delights to dance in the dragon's jaws because he knows himself to be the dragon's undoing. Much to the confusion and consternation of the dragon itself, indeed, we remember, recount, and celebrate and participate in the advent of Jesus. As we do that, we bear witness to the fact, hey, everything you see is not the way it seems. There is much, much Much more to the story. Herod rages on his way to Bethlehem, and our king reigns. Saul rages on the way to Damascus, and our king reigns. We find ourselves pressed. As parents, we find ourselves pressed. As students, we find ourselves stressed and wondering if we can go on, and our king reigns. He holds us, he sustains us by his mighty works, the mighty works of his steadfast love. As we gather for Advent, we gather and bear witness to the fact that he has come. He has fought, he has won, and he will come again victorious and all things will be made new. And so, Father, we pray, even as Paul prayed, that you would grant us courage to know that fact. The fact of your son's coming, the fact of your son's victory, the fact of your son's life, the fact of your son's death, the fact of your son's resurrection, the fact of your son's imminent return. In that, Father, we pray that we may be made a people of hope and a people of joy in a world gone horribly wrong. For we pray it as your children made alive in Jesus. Amen. I invite you to turn to hymn number 227. This is our song for the month. We're learning together on Christmas night, all Christians sing. Let's stand and sing hymn number 227. <clears throat> Christmas night all Christians sing to hear the news the angels bring on Christmas night all Christians sing to hear the news the angels bring news of great joy news of great birth news of our merciful King's birth then why should man Since our Redeemer made us glad, then why should man on earth be sad? Since our Redeemer made us glad, when from our sin he set us free.
departs before your grace, then life and health come in its place. When sin departs before your grace, then life and health come in its place. Angels and men with joy may sing, Hark, hark to see the newborn King. All out of darkness we have light, which made the angels sing this night. All out of darkness we have light, which made the angels sing this night. Glory to God and peace to man, now and forevermore. Amen. Matthew, excuse me, Isaiah declared the good news, that your God reigns. Matthew is telling us the story of the King, God's appointed one, God's anointed one, who reigns. John gives us a little glimpse into the reign of King Jesus. How it was that King Jesus defeated his enemies his sworn enemies, his committed enemies. Listen. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, listen, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside His outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around His waist and He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around Him. And He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, you wash my feet? And Jesus answered, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Because you see, Jesus was waging war. John does not preserve that account for us that we may feel warm fuzzies of sentiment. He preserves that account for us so that we may know that our God reigns and through Jesus Christ, he wages war against his enemies and the enemies of his people. And that is how he does it. He conquers them with his love. Which is why we come to the table. It is our tradition here at Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church that we come to the table every week through the season of Advent. So that we might be reminded that our king reigns. And this, this table, is how he exercises that reign. Our king wages war. And this table is how he wages war. He strengthens us for battle. He equips us for battle. He trains us for battle. 
as we join with him at his table. Which is why Paul is writing to that group of saints, that infamous group of saints, the Corinthians, who were torn asunder by all manner of divisions and rivalries within the congregation. And he said this, Look 